KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The recent anti government protests in Cuba led to a lot of headlines because we don't see demonstrations against the communist regime in the island nation very often at all. What drove Cubans to take to the streets? Was it more than just anger at the government's COVID response? Could change be coming to Cuba? What role does the ongoing U.S. embargo play in everything with regards to Cuba? We wanted to look into all of this, so we reached out to Dr. Lowell Gustafson. He's a professor of political science at Villanova University. Give a listen. So these anti-government demonstrations we've seen in Cuba, what's behind this? Is this all the government's handling of COVID-19 or is the the COVID response to the latest surge just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back? Yeah, I mean, clearly the COVID-19 has complicated that since healthcare, along with education, has been one of the principal selling points uh, of the regime in Cuba. The pro- providing adequate uh, healthcare has been a real accomplishment uh, under the, the Cuban regime. However, increasingly, it's been difficult for them to deliver this health care. And that speaks to the types of issues that you're, you're asking about. What all went into these demonstrations? There's a few answers to, to that. It's The first one is that it's a little bit similar to the unrest that we saw in the early 90s. That came about as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which could no longer supply the, the benefits to Cuba. And there was unrest. At, at that point, uh, they recovered from that relatively uh, uh, quickly. And what helped them then was uh, the government of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who made benefits uh, available to Cuba. But then with Chavez's own death in 2013 and uh, the collapse of in oil prices, Venezuela has been unable to provide as much to Cuba since 2014 or 15 or, or so. But it was Right after that, then, that we have the thaw in U.S.-Cuban relations under President Obama. And he goes there, and, and now this is at the end of his second administration, when it's relatively safe for him electorally to make some Florida conservatives un, unhappy. But he opens up relations with Cuba. There's more tourism. There's more U.S. dollars coming into Cuba as a result. It's easier to send remittances to family members. There, So there's more money, hard currencies flowing into Cuba. Trump comes into office. All of that gets pretty much cut off quite stringently. So they no longer have the Soviet or the Venezuelan support. They no longer have as much money coming in from the United States. And that has created a real economic crisis in addition to what at least many U.S. conservatives see as mismanagement of the economy in Cuba, which then complicated their ability to provide for health care in the same way that it's made it so difficult for the Maduro government to, uh, to do that in Venezuela. So you put all of that together and there's good reason for dissatisfaction uh, in, there in, in, in Cuba. And of course, the whole issue of the US economic embargoes have, has been central. We started that way back in 1961. 
Economic embargoes are a mixed bag at, at best because really the purpose of them is to add to the economic problems of facing common people. Elites very often can withstand the results of an embargo. It's your regular people who, who suffer from that. To be harsh, it can almost be thought of as kind of a form of economic terrorism. It's aimed against the powerless, innocent people who have nothing to do with Cuban policy. But the hope has been that they would become so dissatisfied that they would rise up and call for a change of regime. And that's what we were hoping for. And that's why a week ago Sunday, there was such optimism about these demonstrations. I mean, it really was remarkable to have these break out. This is, this is not something that happens in, in Cuba. People are understandably reluctant uh, to demonstrate publicly, but they came out. And then with social media, the news of that spread, and all of a sudden we had these demonstrations going on throughout the country. That merited all of the news coverage that was being given to this. And we had front page articles and, uh, and, and, and everyone was rightly uh, covering that. Uh, it, it was such an important issue. Um, uh, on the other hand, and it's in many ways, it's what we've been hoping for, for what is this now, you know, over a half a century? And what we saw maybe was the beginning of a people's revolution, a peaceful, peaceful demonstrations. There was no violence in them. There was no riots. You know, people were peacefully demonstrating and calling for that most basic of, of, of goals and liberty. That's what they were calling for. This is exactly what we've sort of, many of us have been hoping for. There's a huge downside to that. There was a very nice op-ed in today's New York Times. You may be read it by a Cuban activist, Chavez Sanchez. And she was saying, we're not going back. We're not afraid. We're, we're pushing ahead. She has all of the optimism that an activist needs to have and all of the determination that activists need to have. And when you look from abroad, you can't help but wish she and her fellows, you know, well in, in, in that regard. But looking from abroad, you also can't help but worry about that. I mean, remember, we had big demonstrations in Tahrir Square in Egypt, and they succeeded in getting rid of Mubarak, but we got Morsi and now Al-Sisi. Nobody would accuse Egypt of being a democracy after all of that. A lot of people thought very well of Hugo Chavez. He was making a lot of benefits available to a lot of people, but there were huge demonstrations in Venezuela against what some saw as his heavy-handed, even dictatorial responses. He died Things went south in the oil markets, and Maduro, who doesn't have his charisma, more importantly, doesn't have his money, hasn't been able to make benefits available to his own people or to outsiders. And so there's been, uh, you've had four million or so Venezuelans have to flee the country. Many more are really hungry, empty shelves, empty uh, hospital uh, supply rooms. And so we have Maduro, who seems to 
he's not leaving power. He's been able to hang on uh, for, for years now. He has enough support in the military and the people who benefit from the government, but he's still there. So, you know, these are cautionary stories when we look at Cuba. You can't help but feel optimistic. You can't help but wish them well. There's a legitimate debate in the United States about what we, what the Biden administration should or can do regarding this. But the People's Revolution could work if there was a competitive party democracy in Cuba, if they could organize a party and field candidates in the next election, they might well do very well. And But there's not. There's a single party system in Cuba. That's not an option. They're not armed. That wasn't a violent revolution. They're not going to lead a, a, a violent revolution. So that's not going to change it. I mean, there's, there's no Fidel Castro-like military leader who's in the offings to, to change the regime. So that's unlikely. So where are we just over a week after those demonstrations? And, and, and I really want to recognize the value of the timing of, of your initiating this conversation, because it was sort of easy the day or two after the demonstrations to cover the story, because there's a lot of optimism about that. But now, a little over a week after, there's time to sort of reconsider where we are. The regime hasn't fallen. And in fact, the regime organized counter demonstrations. And uh, you, you have the president there. You know, again, it's like Maduro and Chavez. The, the current president has none of Fidel Castro's flamboyance uh, and, and, and style. Uh, but he was there to, to lead a counter demonstration. Um, and he showed all of the symbols of the revolution, big pictures of Che and Fidel and the bearded revolutionaries and their olive green garb and so on, and calling on the mythology of the Cuban revolution and trying to re make people remember why there was this revolution. And it was because of Yankee imperialism, just like the economic boycott. Uh, you know, it, it's the Americans' fault. And Let's admit the economic boycott contributed to the misery that Cubans have uh, have, have suffered, and and so they, he blamed the American. But this is this has gotten to be a little bit tired rhetoric for some people in, in Cuba. That's not enough, uh, or something needs to change. Uh, and um, anyway, I, I I need to ask you to to comment. I, 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 this is the problem being a professor; you go on forever. <laughs> but my, my apologies. I wanted to kind of dig into the U.S. embargo on Cuba, its roots, obviously, in the Cold War, the focus, the Cold War, the Soviet Union back in Cuba, capitalism, communism. I think everybody understands. You can agree or disagree, but you can understand what was behind it. There are a lot of countries that, as a novice, as a layman, seem to do a lot worse things that we just kind of uh, whistle past the graveyard on. Why is there still so much attention, so much heavy handedness with Cuba? Is it a case of we've just always done it and nobody wants to be the person to undo it because there'd just be political ramifications for not going so hard like we had before? 
Yeah, you know, the, the official reason, especially early on, as you said, was, you know, we, we, we tried the Bay of Pigs invasion, you know, that turned out to be a disaster. So instead of using military means, we were going to use these economic levers to try to encourage a regime change in, in, in Cuba. And as you said, during the Cold War, Cuba's kind of an outpost that was perceived as the Soviet Union. That sort of made sense to a lot of people. Uh, and that's officially been basically the rationale ever since. We really, how much did we expect after this went on for decades? As it turns out, Cuba is one of the most stable regimes in Latin America. We've had military governments come and go in Brazil and in Argentina and Chile and regime changes here and there. Cuba hasn't. Cuba has remained you know, as stable a country as you can imagine. And so really, did we expect the economic embargo to, to lead to regime change? Most likely not. And then, as you correctly mentioned, why have an economic embargo on, on the Cuban regime? I mean, I, I certainly would join the, the critics of, of, of a number of, Cuban, of the Cuban government's policies. But when you compare that to any number of other countries against whom we don't pursue economic embargo, then, then what's the rationale? And you can't help but think this is about U.S. electoral politics as much as, as it is about foreign policy. Um, lots of Cuban emigres uh, are in Florida. Florida's, you know, always contested um, ever since the days of the hanging chads uh, and continues uh, to be. Um, and there's been a real reluctance uh, to um, alienate uh, Cuban Americans. And do they even expect, you know, they, Clearly, they wanted to get rid of Castro. They had their own reasons. But there's there's been, especially in the first generation of Cuban emigres, just a visceral hatred of what the uh, Castro revolution meant. They lost a lot of property. At the very least, they would like a little revenge. Maybe even they would like their property back, although that uh, even seems uh, you know, a pretty tall order at this point. Uh, there may be a generational uh, change in, in Florida, but there's still a lot of, the, you know, it's, it's the old thing that's in, 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 in electoral politics, sometimes it's the committed minority which holds more sway than what the majority of people think. You know, the, I think the majority of Americans don't see Cuba as a threat. You know, I mean, the Soviet Union is long gone. The Cold War has been over for a generation. I mean, this is a weak, poor nation. They they make rum and cigars and sugar. I mean, what uh, they spent two, three percent of their GDP on their military. Uh, you know, frankly, they can't fight their way out of a paper bag at this point. So they're not a threat to us uh, anymore. What are we getting out of this except to not alienate a key swing state uh, in, in, in Florida? Um, so, you know, from, from one point of view, it certainly seems like to me uh, that the Obama administration was moving U.S. policy in a sensible direction. But even he could only do that at the end of his second term. He wasn't willing 
to take the risk before that. Uh, and he never did close down Guantanamo base as he said he was going to. So, uh, so the pragmatic domestic reasons for, for doing this strikes me as the, the best likely answer to, to what you're trying to get out there. To the point of uh, at the end of Obama's presidency, and I remember the minute-to-minute coverage of him, I believe he was in Havana and, and walking around and stuff like that. How much was done, how much of what was done during that relatively short time period was window dressing, was uh, just for good optics, and how much of it was tangible make a difference? You mentioned the increase in remittances, more dollars trading in, and could you quickly explain for people that don't know what a remittance is, why that's important in, in this context? It's very important, not just for Cuba, for but any, for any number of countries. So you, you have lots of uh, Cuban emigres in, into the United States. They maybe have good reason to dislike the old Castro regime or the communist regime in Cuba, but they want to help their family members. Uh, they still want to help them out. And so there's a long tradition of being interested in sending money uh, to, to family members to try to help them out. One question has been, once you get dollars in, in Cuba, where can you spend them? Uh, and the, the, the issue there is that there were government-owned stores, um, and there you had to use hard currencies, Western currencies, U.S. dollars, uh, to, to buy goods. And so there was kind of a parallel exchange uh, market. Uh, you, it, most people were paid in Cuban pesos. They used that uh, for all the stores that could would, would, would sell only for Cuban pesos. But those stores have increasingly had empty shelves. The government-owned stores, which were seemingly pretty well-stocked, would sell only to those who had dollars. And so there was then a, a, a benefit to those who either were receiving remittances or who were working in the tourist trade where the people were, were being paid in, in dollars and other hard currencies. Um, but then as that increasingly became restricted under the Trump administration, there was less and less of that and greater numbers of people simply couldn't buy the limited goods that were available, maybe through uh, these, these state-owned stores. Um, so, so no, I, I, I think that the Obama change was more than window dressing. Um, Obama was was pushing us in in, in in a direction there, but even then, you know, then we started to have this kind of weird response. Uh, all of a sudden, U.S. diplomats started complaining about headaches, about cognitive issues, couldn't get their memories uh, right, it seemed like. Uh, and it, it turned out that there were these, what, sonic uh, kind of attacks uh, on us. So, you know, the, this sort of uh, high-tech warfare or something was going on. And so clearly issues weren't all being resolved. Uh, and that intensified, of course, under the Trump administration. So there, there was a shift, but there are very long-standing reasons for Cubans to be understandably skeptical of U.S. 
policy and what U.S. goals are. Um, and um, as, as winning a personality as Obama was, you couldn't expect really people who were familiar with their own nation's history to just immediately think that President Obama could fundamentally change uh, U.S. policy. That is, there's been a century uh, of, of experience there. And um, so there was reason, even at the time, for skepticism about that change. So what should we look for going forward? I mean, when what would be some things that we could see that would really indicate that the the communist regime is starting to crack and there's a, a legitimate opening for for change. Well, I you know, I do think there's some reason for hope. I, I, I'm not sure that I'm an optimist yet, but just just the fact that you know the current government in Cuba now is is um, it, they were using symbols that are now well over a half a century old. The pictures of Che and Fidel. I mean, these. This is almost like appealing to George Washington or something. You know, it, it, the 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 median age in Cuba is forty two. Well, that means that the people of the median age don't remember the the, the Cuban Revolution. Um, and to talk about Batista, you know, you almost might as well talk about King George III. You know, it, this, it doesn't resonate as, as much. Um, and so, and then you add to that, the, he just, he doesn't have the personal experience. He doesn't have the personality that Fidel did. You know, whatever you thought about Fidel, he was the best show in town. You know, he could hold people mesmerized in these um, uh, public square lectures in Havana that would go on for hours. But, you know, when there's nothing else to do, this this was worth watching, too. I mean, there was nobody who could compete with Fidel until the Rolling Stones performed there. I mean, you know, yeah, and who can compete with Mick Jagger, not even Fidel, uh, but it, but that all has dissipated. So the the current president um, doesn't have that those those experiences that that resonates with most people in, in, in Cuba now. And just uh, so, so that that president, just so I can get his name out there, Miguel Diaz Canel. Exactly, and uh, so I think that changes it. People are are simply not as loyal, especially, you know, the majority of younger uh, Cubans are simply not loyal. All they know is that they suffer from their, uh, from, from their current experiences. So I think there's, there's a change there. There's also the response of uh, the Diaz-Canal government uh, using the traditional tools of, of dictatorship. They've arrested, you know, we're not sure, 150 people or so are in jail. Um, these are clearly political prisoners. I mean, we have the, the Western Europeans are calling on uh, the Cuban government to, uh, to release those uh, prisoners, those political uh, prisoners, and recognize the, the right of, uh, of, of public protest. But this is this is decidedly not what the, the Cuban government uh, has been has been doing. On the other hand, what that shows is that it, it's much harder to support the government. They're repressive. They don't have the story, the the soft power that that, that, that bolsters them. All of which means perhaps both foreigners 
And common people in, in, in Cuba have greater reason to not support the government, to want to uh, see, see a change. But exactly what's going to achieve that uh, at this point? We're not going to go to a competitive party democracy in Cuba. There's not the electoral route uh, for change. It seems really unlikely to have an armed revolution uh, in Cuba. So how do we get from A to B? Why is it not more likely that we'll end up with the kind of process? You know, we were all very optimistic in the days of the Tahrir Square demonstrations in Egypt. Or, uh, well, those days are, are long gone. And maybe it's possible that this will be different. It, there seems to be a, a, a significant differences at this point. But I'm not willing to bet a lot of money on the happy outcome yet. One of the big questions for us now is what can we in the United States do to support this? I mean, you can't help but want to support uh, the, the people who were carrying out these, these peaceful demonstrations in, in, in Cuba. President Biden has been cautious uh, in, in, in that. I mean, he's, uh, you know, we do have a past, remember, of supporting, you know, we, we supported uh, opponents to Allende in Chile. So this would be possible. Biden is not talking ab about doing that. Uh, you know, he doesn't want to send troops to Haiti. He's, he's not calling for any intervention in Cuba. And he shouldn't. There's too many memories in, in the Caribbean about heavy-handed direct U.S. intervention, which doesn't seem to honestly be about the support of, of democracy and national self-determination. So yeah, to his credit, uh, he, he's been cautious in, in that regard. Should he try to make it more of a public issue? I mean, he, he has said that the Cuban government should respect uh, political protest. Uh, should he be making more of a continual reference, of frequent references to the, the, the arrests uh, of, of political prisoners? Uh, should he keep this so that it doesn't fall off the front page? And it fell off the front page pretty quickly in most of American media. So uh, how can we retain an interest in Cuba uh, and continue, with, at least uh, for the, the focus on, on re some reasons, for limited reasons for, for hope there? And right now, that's maybe the most he can do. That's not an awful lot. It's hard to imagine that that by itself is going to change uh, the regime uh, in Cuba. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs>